welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Let's look to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, Lord. Thank you so much for making the great overture from heaven to earth to save us from our sins. And thank you so much for being here with us now as we open the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 18, verse 10. All right. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I'm waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed will I, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Now, In our last study, we finished by looking at that wonderful expression here that God has used to refer to the time when Sarah is going to have a son. That's talking about the birth of Isaac. And we read in verse 10, and it was repeated another time in verse 14. That wonderful expression, verse 10. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the expression, here it is, the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. Now, We can just imagine, in verse 14, he repeated the same thing. I'll return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, we can imagine, as we read those two verses, how happy God was to use that phrase, the time of life. It's a great phrase. You know, God loves, if you're going to say, which season, just sort of imagine a little bit, which season does God love the most? Surely it's spring. Why? Because winter is the time of death. And spring is the time of life. When everything revives, it's the time of life, and it makes God very, very happy. He loves to see this time called the time of life. God loves to give life. And man had his time, as we've studied already, his time of life when God gave him this life. He loved to give him this life. And man had that time. And and just turn a couple pages back to that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 to see that once again, because it's instructive for us as we read these words in Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That scene teaches us so much about God. And there's one very, very important word when we look at, at that verse, and it's in the middle of the verse, And it's the word and, because it shows a division there. It's very important, because right at the point of the verse where we read, 
the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, man at that point is in a state where we could, we could call man the just formed dust. That's how he is right there. He's the just formed dust. And man is, is nothing more in that place as just the just formed dust. And so in this verse, we see God as the potter who's just formed the dust. And it's amazing to see God focus his efforts and his attention as we do in this verse on man as the ju- at this part as the just formed dust. And so what we see in this verse of Genesis 2-7 is really two steps in the creation of man. First, there is this step we're talking about here, the just formed dust, and then the word and shows us that there's another step in the creation of man, and that's the step of the time of life, of God giving to man life. Now, that step of making man a living soul is after he has just formed a man from the dust, and we could sit there, we can, and before God does that, we could ask the question that King David asked God in Psalm 144.3, where, where David says to God, Lord, what is man? that thou takest knowledge of him. But even in man's just formed dust state, God takes knowledge of him. He focuses on him. He looks at him. And he does something absolutely amazing when we read this. And breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What a scene that is for us in Genesis 2-7. God with his own hands as the great potter, he's forming, as the Hebrew word as we've seen before, yatsar, means he's just formed man with his hands. And the word yatsar literally means, two parts to it, to squeeze it with the hands into shape, to use the hands to squeeze into shape. And encapsulated in that Hebrew word yatsar is this squeezing with the hands into shape. And then there's a second part to that meaning of that word, and it's with great purpose, with great purpose. See, these are the two concepts behind the word yatsar. It's a squeezing with the hands with purpose or and purpose. See, that's the yatsar picture of the potter, and it's a picture of the potter who we can see there getting his hands all dirty when he takes that wet dust or that clay to form or squeeze into shape his creation. And the picture we see of the potter is of a person who's really getting into his work. And we see that potter getting all dirty in the process, but the potter doesn't care because he has a purpose in his mind. And that purposeful potter has a creation in his mind. He can see it. It's he can see it very clearly in his mind, and nothing can, can distract him until he fulfills the purpose of making what is in his mind a reality in the clay. Every artist does that. Every musician does that. They can hear the words. That's why it didn't matter that Beethoven was deaf. He heard the words in his mind, and as the artist, he had this purpose of getting the music down. And the potter is getting, we can see him getting more and more dirty. And he's not looking at himself. The potter is 100% focused on the clay and how it's turning out. Now, you come 
to our Creation Museum, and, and you might see Marvin Ross at work. And Marvin has painted most of the murals at the Creation Museum for the past 20 years. And Marvin, he, when he works, he, you can see him. He's got this idea in his mind, and he's so focused, and he's got this palette and these paints all over the place, and he's, he's mixing up these paints to get the colors just right on the palette, and he gets frustrated, and you can tell when Marvin gets frustrated, and he wipes the palette clean, and he starts all over again, and then he paints, and then he says, now, you know, sometimes he'll say, man, look at this, you know, I don't like it, and then the next thing you know, he's painting all over it again. We have a lot of layers of paint in this, some of those places, and in the process, what Marvin is doing, he, first of all, in the process, Marvin is turning into an absolute mess, and no one shakes Marvin's hands. <laughs> Don't shake his hands. He's got paint all over him. The paint all over him, all over his smock. But that's the Yatsar picture. It's the getting the hands dirty. That's what Marvin does. And Marvin doesn't care how dirty he gets. He's a painter with a purpose. And that mural may end up with lots of coats of paint, but it'll eventually end up just the way Marvin sees it in his mind. And Marvin will stay there till closing time, and he'll come first time in the morning, first one in the morning when it opens up, just to get that mural out of his mind onto the wall. And that's the Yatsar purpose in Marvin until he gets what's in his mind on that wall. And those are the two concepts that are tied up in this word Yatsar, or formed, that's first used here in Genesis 2-7, where it says, and God, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And God doesn't care how Yatsar dirty his hands get in the process because God has this Yatsar purpose of making man, of, of taking what is in his mind for man and making it a reality. And God's getting dirty in Genesis 2-7 with the dust. And the word for clay that's used in Isaiah 41-25 is the, is the Hebrew word tiyit, and it means it has the root of sticky. It's really a mess. <laughs> But just like Marvin Ross, God doesn't care how dirty he gets because God has a purpose to make man just the way he wants him, even if it means getting all that to eat sticky clay all over him. And after it's formed, you remember God, you go, he says, perfect. That's what he does, you know. He's just how he That's God the potter, the yotzar. He's finished the work of making the body of man. And then we see he's not finished yet in Genesis 2-7. He has something more in his mind. And that man should become a living soul. A living soul. A soul alive. A nefesh kaya. A soul that's alive. And it's not enough for man to just be a physical body. But God has in mind for man to be a living soul. And it will cost God something. And not just get going to cost God something for man to become a living soul. And so we see God do something absolutely astounding in these next words. God breathes into the nostrils of man. It's not enough to say that. It gets a very graphic image. And start talking about the nostrils of man. He breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. It's so amazing. We see this. We say, what is this worth looking at? God bending down to put his mouth over the nostrils of a lifeless lump of dust? What do we think? God exhaling from himself through the nostrils of man, literally the breath or the puff or the nishmat, the, the puff of lives in the plural, Chaim, and that cost God something. And God bent down to put his mouth over the nostrils of man and breathe into man life. 
And that costs God something to make man a living soul. God condescended when he did that. God humbled himself to make man a living soul. And if we were there, when, when God did that, when God made man, I'd say we're staying on the sidelines. I don't know what we'd be, but if we were. And God, we saw God condescending and bending over to breathe man, we would protest and we'd say, no, you're God. You don't do that. You can't do that. You're God. Would you please just don't back up? Don't even think of doing something like that. I can't let you do that. You're God. And if we'd been there and done that, God would have turned to us and said, you don't know what I am doing. And if I don't do this, then man will not be a living soul. And that's exactly the scene that happened in John 13, 3 through 8, where it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God, and that he went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself and after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus saith unto him, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. He protested. And Jesus said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. That passage started out by talking, by saying that the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he was come from God, he was going to God, he was filled with the consciousness that he was God. And he humbled himself, took this basin, towels, washed the feet of man. See, God breathed into man the breath of life. And that was all about the time of life. And when man lost that life with God because of sin, then the Yatsar Potter, God, has something in his mind. And what he has in his mind is to restore the life. But this time it would cost God much more than just putting his mouth on a dirty lump of dust. This time, to bring man, dead men to life, it would cost God much more to accomplish what God had in his mind, to bring life from the dead. And what God had in his mind was to restore the life that man had lost because of sin. What God had in his mind is called in the Bible the mind of Christ. And that's described for us in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, where it says, let this mind be in use which was also in Christ Jesus. See, that's the mind of Christ in Philippians 2.5. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found as fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he's equal with God because he is God. But in order to breathe again life into man who is dead, it cost him, it cost him to bring back life to man. It cost him humbling himself. God humbled himself to be, make himself of no reputation. God humbled himself to take on him a form of a servant. God humbled himself to be made in the likeness of men. God humbled himself to become obedient to death. 
God humbled himself to become obedient to the death of the cross. And God did all that because this is all about what it took to bring the time of life to sinful dead men. And he loves to do this. And it's a happy day for God. God says, I'm glad to do it. He says it's a very happy day when he brings a time of life to sinful dead men. And the Lord Jesus Christ talked about the two things. He talked about the cost and he talked about the happiness that he feels when every dead sinful man comes to him for life. He talks about the cost in Matthew 13, 43 to 46 in a couple of parables when he said, then shall the righteous shine. And that makes him really happy. Fourth, as the son of the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid. Nobody knows about it. In a field. Every good businessman sees the treasures hid in a field. And then he goes and he he does what every businessman does, what he talks about here. The which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, which he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. See the theme. He sells all that he has, he gives it his all so he can get it. And he talks about the joy after he gets it in Luke 15, 3 through 10, through some parables, when he said he spake this parable unto them, saying, which man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine and, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So that's the theme, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth his friends and saith, neighbors, and says to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep, which was lost. I say unto you, likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, moreover than the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And then he goes on, either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, seek diligently until she find it, and when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me, same words, rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. See, when these verses talk about joy in heaven and the joy in the presence of the angels of God, whose joy is that? That's God's joy. That's God, jo- God rejoicing in the presence of the angels. That's the joy that's in heaven. God's so happy Because God loves the time of life for each sinner who comes to him for life. The Lord Jesus Christ loves when a dead, lost sinner comes to him for life. That's the time of life, and he rejoices. Now, notice in Genesis 18.10, there's a very important word there. In Genesis 18.10, a very important word where we read, And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah, thy wife shall have a son. Sarah heard it in the tent door behind him. The very important word in verse 10 is the word certainly. I will certainly. When God uses that word certainly, God means you can take it to the bank, or as the famous Texan Mildred Dombo used to say, you bet your life on that. (laughs) Anyway, it was so unlikely 
that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a baby. They're 100 years old, you know. I mean, they're standing in the face. I mean, there's God. They're standing in the face of their age. God's standing in the face of that unlikelihood. And God uses the word certainly, you know, to kind of defy the obvious. And Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. This promise of Sarah having Isaac is very important, and the word certainly emphasizes the the point that's being made here. And in the book of Romans, in chapter 9, and if you turn to this, Paul refers to this verse and this certainty, and he says something very important for us in Romans 9, 8 through 9, where it says, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time will I come, Sarah shall have a son. See, the key to understanding those verses, as I was trying to emphasize the parts in there, comes from the terms, the children of the flesh, and the children of God, and the children of the promise, and the word of promise. Because this, this is, as you know, these, these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, are all about the subject of the spiritual death and the rebirth of the Jewish people. And if you have gone, if you've had the wonderful experience of going to the Jewish people and looking for a positive reaction when you speak to them about the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what Paul's talking about here. Because when he speaks about the spiritual death of the Jewish people, that caused Paul to have said in the beginning of this chapter, Romans 9-2, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. It wouldn't go away. And if you brought the gospel to the Jewish people, then you also know personally that great heaviness and continual sorrow that you can't shake because of their spiritual dead state. And we all with Paul have said We just don't see how the Jewish people can come to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you this before when I was in the Philippines and the Filipino pastor came up to me and he said, I met my first Jewish person. He was shocked and I said, what's wrong? He said, the Jewish person told me I'd rather go to hell than believe in Jesus. And that's not atypical. And we all with Paul have said, we just don't see how the Jewish people could come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all with Paul have looked at the Jewish people, and with Ezekiel, we saw what Ezekiel described in Ezekiel 37.1, the valley which was full of bones. And when we look around all the Jewish people as a whole and try, and try to imagine then coming to the Lord Jesus, all we see is what Ezekiel saw Behold, there were very many in the open valley, and they were very dry. He's talking about the bones. And we see what Ezekiel saw. Very low probability of any Jewish person turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we wonder the same question that God asked Ezekiel in, the, in Ezekiel 37.3, and he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? Yeah. And we see how far the Jewish people are from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we respond to that question, can these bones live just like Ezekiel did in Ezekiel 37.3? And I answered, oh, Lord, thou knowest. I'm not touching that. He says, 
along with Ezekiel, we say, I don't see how. <laughs> I don't see how, but uh, I don't see how. And from trying to bring the gospel to the Jewish people, we say the same thing. I don't see how the Jewish people can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with Paul, that same. Paul says the same thing. I don't see how the Jewish people can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And faced with this dilemma, we ask Paul, Paul, what's the answer to the great dilemma? And Paul answers us through Genesis 18.10. To answer the question, he says in Romans 9, he says, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The children of the promise are caught up for the seed. This is the word of promise at this time. Will I come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul is saying there, look, when you read Genesis 18.10, you need to see that it's a word of promise. It's a word of promise for a child of promise. That's what's all tied up in here. And he's saying, Paul is saying to us, listen to the word of promise. Look for the child of promise. Don't be discouraged by looking at the children of the flesh. And he's directing us, Paul's directing us in Gen- through Genesis 18.10 with that important word, certainly. There is as much chance of the Jewish people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for life as there is for a hundred-year-old couple to have a baby. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor.